I'm Sarah Kaplan, and I'm a science reporter at The Washington Post. The news that I write about can feel far away and long ago. Sometimes it's literally both things. But I think that it helps us understand our place in the universe. It broadens our sense of wonder. It expands our curiosity. And those are qualities that you carry with you into the rest of your day. The journalism I do depends on subscribers to The Washington Post. Become one today at postreports.com slash subscribe. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Ben Terrace coming from The Washington Post. Hi, Jeff. Miss Winfrey, Oprah. Hi there. How are you? It's Lisa Bonas calling for The Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, January 13th. Today, women in the job market, hard questions about race on a college campus, and hundreds of earthquakes in Puerto Rico. So I talked to this wonderful woman named Rachel Higgins, who had a career at IBM before she had children. And she always said that when her youngest child went to college, that she was going to go back to work. So... 21 years after she left her last job, she ended up getting a job through an organization that helps women re-enter the workforce. She was hired full-time in September. And the way she described it to me is that after 21 years of being out of a job, now she's giving big presentations for global companies. And she said, I'm back. I'm back, baby. My name is Rachel Siegel, and I'm a national business reporter at The Washington Post. Women outnumber men in the American workforce for only the second time in the country's history. It's a very small margin. Women worked 50.04% of payroll jobs last month, and that was just up from 49.99 the month before. So we're looking at, you know, decimal points here. But the exciting thing is that for the second time in history, women are now in the majority of the workforce for reasons that have been building for quite a long time, but we're now starting to see in the numbers. And what are those reasons? So the jobs that women are entering into are in industries that are growing much faster than the industries that men tend to enter. So, for example, healthcare and education jobs are growing at some of the fastest rates that we saw last year, whereas jobs in construction or manufacturing or mining are starting to slip. And those are jobs that men tend to take in higher numbers. You know, over the past couple of decades, women have also invested in higher education in levels that are higher than what their male counterparts have done. So there are a lot of things that have been pushing these numbers in this direction for the past couple of years. And then last month, the numbers finally tipped. And you said that this is the second time that this has happened since 2010. Right. So the last time this happened was in the wake of the Great Recession. The reason that that happened then is because jobs in manufacturing, construction, were just completely gutted. If you drill into these numbers at the right side of the chart, you can see that uh, men uh, suffered a little worse than women during this recession. That's Robert Groves, the former director of the U.S. Census Bureau on C-SPAN in 2011. Most people uh, relate that to the kinds of occupations and industries men are working in, manufacturing and construction really getting hit during the recession, affecting men more than women. And so men were essentially kicked out of the workforce in much higher numbers as women were entering in. But, you know, at that time, men were hoping to return to those jobs. So now economists are saying that there's a more permanent dynamic at play where men and women are entering into the workforce, but the industries that women are entering into in higher numbers 
are just booming at much faster rates. You know, for example, in December, there were 145,000 jobs added to the economy. Women took 139,000 of them. So, yeah. Yeah. And we're talking about women of all different experiences. These are women who are entering after some sort of gap in employment. Maybe they stopped working after they had children or women who are entering for the first time. Uh, And I talked to a couple of women who said, you know, that there are circumstances and the kinds of jobs that they're looking for now that maybe wouldn't have been possible 15, 20 years ago when the last time they held a job was, whether that's remote work or more flexible work schedules. So it's both factors in the broader economy as well as, you know, just policies that employers are putting into place that are making it easier for women to come back to work. I feel like it's really interesting to think more about that and the types of women who are getting these kinds of jobs. Because historically, there have been a lot of impediments to women working in the workforce, both just in terms of general sexism, but also specifically for women who haven't had the same type of work experience that that men tend to have or who have taken big gaps because of taking time off to be a mother. And it seems like the women that you've talked to are saying that people are more receptive to those kinds of experiences and that they're facing less discrimination on that front. Absolutely. So, for example, I talked to two women who went back to work after they had children and their kids grew up a little bit. And they both said, you know, that the jobs that I had previously would never have allowed me to have the kind of flexibility that I have now. Or one woman actually said that part of the reason she was able to go back to work is because her husband could work remote. One woman had worked before in the legal profession and said that, you know, her job at the law firm was pretty hostile to arrangements to take a kid to a doctor's appointment or just have a little bit more flexibility. But now she's able to work from home the whole time. So the fact that people are employing female workers, especially workers who previously may have been discriminated against or that may not have been considered, quote unquote, attractive hires, why is that? Is it just out of the goodness of these employers' hearts or is there something larger at play here? I think that there are a couple of things at play. We are in the middle of a very tight labor market, which means that employers are looking for workers. And that creates this dynamic where workers have a little bit more leverage when it comes to what they ask for in their job. And that can include anything from a salary raise to the types of arrangements that might make it easier, for example, for a mom with young kids to start working again, whether that's working from home or working from home a couple days a week or having just a little bit more flexibility that maybe people who are applying to jobs couldn't ask for before. And does technology have anything to do with the fact that women are entering the workforce in greater numbers? Yeah, it's interesting. This wasn't something that had occurred to me, but I talked to one economist who gave the example of drivers. So if you think of an industry like the cab driver industry, that that has long been dominated by male drivers. But what one woman said to me is, you know, if you think about an app that allows a driver to know a little bit more about who they're picking up, have some sort of tracking information, that that is in a lot of ways a safety measure for women who wouldn't necessarily have just wanted to, like, let any old dude into her car, but now maybe has, you know, the assistance of some sort of app service to help with that, and that that is helping women become Lyft drivers and Uber drivers when maybe they wouldn't have been cab drivers before. But from what people are seeing, the fact that more women are employed now than men, does that mean that women are closing the gap in how much they're paid, or are we still seeing a disparity between what these women are earning and what men who do similar jobs are earning? So the jobs report figures don't tap on pay specifically, but what is true is that these types of shifts create a pipeline where more women are in the workforce, more women are in 
higher positions in the workforce. And so, you know, the, the more the trend shifts in this direction, the more there's a pipeline that extends further into the future that would have repercussions for things like pay disparities and, and other gender discrepancies that we see in the workforce. And do economists expect that this is a trend that's going to continue and that we're going to see more of the workforce being taken up by women? So economists don't know, for example, how the numbers will play out next month. You know, these are these are tiny decimals that we're talking about. But it is absolutely true that it would be a shock if this broader trend didn't continue. Fears about a recession have largely cooled. And, and a lot of these dynamics have been building for a very long time. So the way one economist put it to me is that this is something that we should definitely expect to see over the next couple months and years. Rachel Siegel writes about business for The Post. Georgia Southern University is a large public school with a campus in Statesboro. This past fall, a series of events took place there that brought up a lot of questions about race and privilege. Education reporter Mariah Belingit has been covering the school, and she says that the story starts with housing assignments. There was a white student who allegedly texted a woman who was going to be her roommate. The white girl... She was able to look at her social media profile. And as she was conversating with a friend of hers, she had made the comment that, you know, based on her profile, that she did not look too n***ish. Looks fine, not too N-word-ish. And she thought she had texted this to her friend, but she had actually texted it to her roommate. Who was Black. The Black girl, um, she had notified her friends of the incident, and her friend posted it on social media, in which it became viral. She tried to backtrack right away with the with the Black roommate and say, I meant to say triggerish. Obviously, a lot of people were very skeptical of this explanation because they didn't understand how triggerish could get autocorrected to N-wordish. Her speech is protected by the First Amendment, and... It really led to this explosion of anger on campus by students who felt like they didn't belong at Georgia Southern. One of those students was Keyshawn Housey. He's a 21-year-old history major, he's Black, and he's an officer in the student government. We were very upset. We were very upset, and we wanted something to be done about it. And to know that... The university wasn't going to make any major moves at the time. It was just very disheartening. In the end, the university actually hired a diversity consultant and did a a big study of racial climate on campus. And they decided that they were going to address issues of race and inclusion more directly in a required freshman course called First Year Experience. And that also included reading this book um, by Janine Capo-Cruset. The book is called Make Your Home Among Strangers. It's a novel about a Cuban-American teenager from Miami who goes to a prestigious college in the Northeast. So all of the students were supposed to have read this book. They were supposed to have discussed it to some degree in class. And they were either required or strongly encouraged to go watch her speech. 
When I'm getting dressed to teach or for a meeting, I'm putting on my professor costume. It still sometimes feels like an act that I can't admit is my reality. After she spoke during a Q&A, a white student got up and said, um, So I noticed that you made a lot of generalizations about the majority of white people being privileged. And I just wanted to know what makes you qualified to come to a college camp? I'm not saying you don't have qualifications. That's what I'm I feel saying. like deja vu, right? Okay, well, that's fine. Yeah. The author afterwards said, We're not going to figure this out today, me and you talking this way. Uh, but I really do encourage you and whoever this young person's instructor is to really follow up and have that compassionate conversation that's patient and that, um, that allows for progress to be made and for understanding. But some students wanted to express their opposition to the book in a different way. I was literally on the way to class and literally I opened up Twitter for the first time that day. Literally the first thing I see was what appeared to be you know, a group of Georgia Southern students burning something on a grill. You don't add nothing to it. <laughs> don't yeah, add don't to it. It's yeah, on their way. Like, Just leave it there at this point. Yeah. Then I had read, you know, the caption and come to find out it was an author's book. There were some students who decided to burn her book in the quad of one of the dormitories. And they filmed it, put it on social media, in one case tweeted footage of the book burning to the author herself. And she was frightened and disturbed by this and decided to actually leave the college town in the middle of the night and stay in Savannah. And she canceled her talk the following day. And I looked at the video and that was the first thing that came to my mind. Nazi. Nazi book burnings, Nazi Germany. I was, I was very, sh- I was shocked. I was very shocked. Have these students read Fahrenheit 451? Like, did they get what was so wild about what they were doing? I talked to a couple of students who actually burned their books, um, and they would not give me their names because they're fearful of backlash. But what they told me was that they burned the book because they didn't like what she said. And they didn't seem to have any of the historical context behind book burning. You know, the fact that book burning often precedes really violent acts, or it's considered sort of an act of erasure. It's not an act of protest. It's an act that says, I don't want to hear this person speak anymore. Um, They didn't seem to quite understand the gravity of it. I actually talked to one girl who burned her book who said, I don't think most people really knew why they were doing it. And they kind of described it as sort of stupid teenage stuff. So I don't think they had the historical context or understood what they were doing. I remember when I was a freshman in college, we got a pretty similar assignment where everyone in the freshman class was expected to read this book. I still I still remember the book. Um, it was Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria by Beverly Tatum. And it was basically about systemic racism and the ways in which, like, even if you're not running around, you know, throwing nooses on trees or, like, carving the N-word into buildings, that you're still, by doing nothing, you're still, like, contributing to the status quo, which is a system of racism. It was a really, like, interesting, nuanced, very compelling argument. And we were supposed to, as a freshman class, we we had like a whole lecture about it, and then we were sp- supposed to sit down in small groups and talk about the book and what, how we felt about the book and reflect on the book. And I just remember that it was a disaster because 
you're putting these freshmen together in this situation where I think that that kids in college, especially freshmen in college, are already feeling so vulnerable and like just beginning to figure out their sense and their place in a college setting and and figuring out a sense of belonging. And then to have someone tell you, actually, part of the reason why you're here is because of the system that you previously weren't really aware of if you're a white kid, like a system of privilege that has contributed to getting you to where you are today. And I think that something about that makes people really get back on their heels and, and get super defensive. And so it's just, it, it's, I just remember being in this situation and being like, now I, like, 18-year-old me is expected to explain or, like, defend the idea of of calling out white privilege and and the importance of acknowledging things like systemic racism in a space full of my peers and that that feels really personal and really hard, even though it's supposed to be kind of an, like an academic lesson. Right. I know. And I think especially if you're the only person of color or one of a few, you're expected to represent both the academic and the personal perspective of explaining racism or explaining white privilege. And it's a very difficult thing to do because, you know, even if you're well-versed in the language of it, you know, there's a lot of trauma associated with having experienced racism. And it's just difficult. It's difficult to teach it. And I think what I learned and what probably would have been helpful in that situation is to have a very well-trained facilitator, somebody who understands how to teach the subject and how to diffuse really, really emotional situations. So what did administrators at the school do when it came out that these students had burned these books and that there was video of it? So they condemned what the students did. They were clearly horrified and upset about it. University administrators time and time and time again, and I literally heard them say this time and time and time again in forums, said that the students' actions are protected by the First Amendment and that they have no grounds to punish them on. There were some students of color who brought up the fact that they needed to have a, a permit for using the grill, but apparently that didn't apply at this particular campus, so that was not a grounds to punish them. So they, as far as I know, they didn't do anything to the, the students who did this. I'm not even sure if they tried to identify them. And for students of color on campus or, or students who felt themselves represented by what Crusette was trying to talk about, what did they have to say about both the book burning and also what sounds like not really much tangible action from administrators? There was clearly a ton of frustration around this because there was actually an event in the previous year in which a white student had allegedly used the N-word with her Black roommate in a text message um, that blew up over social media, and that student was also not punished. And they also said, you know, her speech is protected by the First Amendment. So there were a lot of students of color who, who stepped forward and were clearly upset that these students would face no consequences and also said that they felt unsafe on campus. What is the university going to do about it? Is anybody going to be held accountable? Especially coming off the heels of the triggerous incident. We, you know, some people, myself included, I even had hope that maybe Finally, something, something will be, something will be done to these students. Something, somebody will be held accountable. 
that was the mood of the campus. And it was sad, too, to hear from students who who were wondering and questioning whether they should have gone to Georgia Southern at all. I spoke to one biracial student who said, maybe I shouldn't have gone to a PWI, a predominantly white campus. Maybe I should have picked an HBCU campus because there are a lot of historically black colleges and universities in Georgia. And she said that this incident had really made her question again why she went to Georgia Southern. So from your discussions with students of color, students who participated in or supported the book burning, and also from from staff and faculty on campus, what do you think what do you think is your big takeaway of what this incident and the things that happened after it represent? I think first of all it shows how divided we are on our perceptions of race and racism and the role that they play in our society. And it shows how difficult it is to teach race. Reading this book, for example, all stemmed from an effort to tackle race and diversity and inclusion more directly in the classroom. And what resulted was this book burning. There's clearly a lot of progress to be made. So I actually talked to a lot of professors, mostly sociology professors, who teach race and teach about racism in the classroom. And they talked about the difficulty of it and how you know, it's it's not exactly like teaching quadratic equations. There's an intellectual component, obviously. You're teaching history. You're teaching uh, sociology. You're showing facts and figures and statistics, but there's also a deeply personal element to it. And I think it really made me reflect on, like, how did I learn about race and racism? And as a person of color, the first way we learn about race and racism is experiencing it. But I've also had to, you know, learn about things like redlining and learn about discriminatory housing policies. And I've delved deeper into Supreme Court cases around school segregation, for example. And that's also a really important way to learn about racism. So I think it shows to me that it's just it's so difficult to teach race and racism in the classroom, particularly with people who are not open to it, but that it's wholly possible. Mariah Belingit is an education reporter for The Post. And now, one more thing. In this one area, there were 60 homes that were either destroyed, demolished, or collapsed, that had collapsed, or at great risk, meaning a person shouldn't go back in there. But that's, you know, 60 families, right, or plus. Could be more than one family in a home. And then there's also a lot of people that just, they don't want to sleep in their home tonight. That's Alex Amparo. He works for FEMA in Puerto Rico, where there have been more than a thousand earthquakes in the past month. I don't know in the whole area what I do know. We had a population of near a thousand people at a shelter in, uh, in Ponce. Arelise Hernandez is a reporter for The Post. She covered Puerto Rico in the aftermath of Hurricane Maria two years ago. Now she's back on the island reporting on a relentless series of earthquakes. 
It's a harrowing experience for people across the island. Aftershocks of varying degrees and potency can come at any time, and sometimes within 10 minutes of each other. The mental and emotional state of Puerto Ricans is deteriorating rapidly after the trauma they endured in the aftermath of Hurricane Maria. There's people like Iris Rodriguez Lugo, a mother of 45 years of age who is in a constant state of alertness. She's that way because she wants to protect her nine-year-old son in the event something should happen. He tells me, Mommy, I don't want to die. I want to live many years. And I tell him, no, no, nothing's going to happen to us. And he tells me then, because he's very attached to me, he says, Mommy, nothing is going to happen to you either because I want you to grow old by my side. He's very emotionally affected. He keeps asking, Mommy, are you okay? I'm fine, I'm fine, you know. It seems like he's very affected. Psychologists told me that the incessant anxiety and fear that something bad could happen poisons the body and could lead to desperation. People are having panic attacks and heart attacks. Any sound sets them off. Children are nervous, and the elderly and infirm are sleeping on cots and on the ground. One woman told me she'd rather have 20 Marias instead of these earthquakes, because you know when a hurricane is coming and can prepare. The situation is so perilous that one doctor told me that Puerto Rico should prepare for a spike in suicides. The atmosphere of uncertainty is compounded by a lack of trust in government. Puerto Ricans saw their government fail them two years earlier, and that anger helped fuel the ouster of the former governor this summer. Some of what is happening feels like a repeat of the past. The power grid went down, although most people have power now. And the mixed messages about the damage to the primary generation plant in the South has only aggravated that distrust. Governor Wanda Vasquez Garced readily admitted that the island doesn't have an emergency plan for earthquakes ready yet. And it took a few days for emergency management personnel to move into the southern region. Now they are waiting and hoping President Trump will sign a major disaster declaration that will release more money for building inspections, emergency housing, and repairs to the Costa Sur power plant. Keep in mind, Puerto Rico is still waiting on the bulk of the federal disaster recovery funds, $18 billion for Maria. Residents have little hope the federal government will help. The seismic activity will likely continue to at least the end of the month, hopefully with less frequent and powerful temblers, but no one knows exactly what to expect. But for now, people like Iris are just worried about the basics. I just want a stable place for my baby. A stove to make him food, a fridge, a little bed for him. Everything else comes step by step. But for now, the most important thing is a roof over my head. Arelise Hernandez is a national reporter for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. A couple of weeks ago, we did a story on the podcast about sober curiosity and people who were experimenting with not drinking. 
We heard from a lot of listeners who were planning to embark on a dry January. And we're curious, how is that going? If that is you, share your thoughts in the Post Reports Facebook group or tag me on Twitter. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Thank you.